0: Right, to start the music today, we call on a new group making their first appearance in Top of the Pops. They're called The Spectres, and this is Gloria.
1: make sure I feel all
2: right, make sure I feel so good, make sure I feel all right, all right,
0: all right.
2: Hey, G.L. Yeah. The Spectres there. Radio you, Strange Brews the Show of Your choice.
1: Hello and welcome again to the Strange Brew Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard, and that was the Spectres, as explained by Brian Matthews there, and Gloria from their Saturday Club BBC radio session from September 1966, and of course the Spectres. The precursor to one of the great bands of the British rock era, status quo, and on the drums in their classic years was John Coughlin. So let's hear my chat with John. Hello. Hello, mate. All right. Great. Thanks so much for speaking to me. Okay, no problem. I've been looking at um, uh, your website to see some of the activities you're involved with, and one of them is uh, a new biography of you by uh, Stephen Meyer, Spud. Can you tell us a little bit about that?
0: Well, it's... um... The first book me and Steve put out was um, Cogner and Co. Some time ago, I think that was a couple, two or three years ago. And Steve said, so "Let's do another one." It's all about the '60s and my thing up to date. What I'm doing with um, John Cogner's Co. reimagine, which is some of the Co. songs in my set, that is done in a jazz style. But you can still recognize the song, obviously. We haven't changed it that much, but it's something different for me to do, you know.
1: That's the quote reimagined way where you're doing uh, more jazz versions of many of the
0: songs from Quo. Is that right? Yeah, because I mean, it already started a couple of years ago when I, me and Jilly, we go to Burford, to Warwick Hall and see the jazz every month. And that's the fact we're going tonight to see uh, a little jazz band. But the thing is, um, I got talking to Paul Jeffries, who's played double bass, and we had a chat and I said, so I'd love to sit in one day and play. And he so said, Why don't you and me do something together? So I put the band together. So, what he pulled in um, Alex Steele on keyboards and Ben Holder on violin and vocals. And um, I'm obviously playing drums, playing with brushes mainly. And it really is interesting. We had a rehearsal and we enjoyed it. And we've done a few gigs and uh, a couple of them were sold out. And I um, was really pleased with it. And it, it, it's actually because a lot of fans come along because they're not sure what it's all about, and they come and look, and they go, at the end, they come up and say, oh, John, that was great, thank you for that, that was good fun, and I said, thanks for supporting me, it was lovely. It goes back to some of your influences
1: for your your drumming style, because obviously, drummers like Buddy Rich, or, or some of the drummers from the 60s that were just before you were heavily influenced by jazz, like Bobby Elliott, Charlie Watts, so you're reconnecting a little bit with that jazz feel, aren't you?
0: Yeah, I think it, it goes back to really my early days i mean my mum and dad used to take me up to what they call the cph crystal palace hotel they'd have dance bands on the weekend because mums and dads you know all go they go ballroom dancing but i'd sit and watch the band and and i was told that they had a break and i got up and more, i could just probably stand behind the drums and started to pick up the sticks and the drummer told me to get off the stand and i just watched just watched drummers and it was um just the way things were in those days, and I thought well, I'd like to do that. And I sort of listened to Dad's records and LPs and Joe Loss and all that stuff, and orchestras, and then there was a, you know the little jazz bands, and it just thing I, it interested me. And Dad bought me a little Broadway drum kit, and of course then I taught myself, and that's how it progressed, really. But uh, yeah, I, I and an interesting thing is I was uh, at a gig yesterday um, with Don Powell, we, yeah. a slave drummer, and we were talking about things and. Q&A with um, the audience and it was really good fun but we're, we're talking about drums and I was signing autographs and this guy says oh well, you're left-handed you play drums right-handed and I said yeah that's purely because when I saw drums in my my time my young my young days you never saw a left-handed drummer playing the other way around so I just sort I taught myself to go around the kit and um, do it right and you know that's how it works and evidently Ringo Star was left-handed but played right-handed and so did John Bonham so it's just the way you start and you, you teach yourself to do things your way other than being told what to do the right way. Were your first
1: groups if you want to call it that in when you were in the Air Cadets?
0: Oh yeah yeah see that's interesting I believe in life things connect to something else and that connects to something else and I was at school Kingsdale Comprehensive in Allen Park near Dulwich in South London and um There was a guy in my class called Stephen Ainsworth, and he said, I understand you like aeroplanes, John. Yeah, I do, especially military, chatting away about aeroplanes. And he said, Why don't you don't tell the rest of this class, but I'll take you up to the air cadets next weekend, meet the CEO, and you can join up. I said, Great. And, uh, you know, in those days, we were all still at school and things that mum and dad were very proud that an RAF uniform on, you know, we cycle up there. I I think it was a Wednesday. On a Sunday, be on parade, as they called it then. Uh, and we put little groups going in the squadron, Wally Rogers, Johnny Bush, only two guitars. And all we did was do shadows, and instrumentals, and two guys kept coming in saying, Come here, listen, come listen. And that turned out to be Francis Rossley and Alan uh, Lancaster. They asked me, Are you doing anything? I said, No, not with this. No, he said, Would you join our band? So I went down to Forest Hill next weekend, and um, that was a start. And so, you know, it's great. I mean, I believe we became the Spectres. on an audition that ended up being uh, playing for a summer season at Butlins in Minehead. Fortunately for that, that's where we met Rick Parfitt. He was singing with two girls called the Highlights. We persuaded Rick to join, so that's how it all started. Because speaking to uh, quite a few musicians from the
1: '60s, I'm not sure younger people would know now. But having a summer season, at a summer camp was a huge deal, and you, you'd be playing to yeah. huge audience in ballrooms,
0: weren't you? I think we did I think we played we were told to play in the rock and roll ballroom and Rick Parfit was um, singing with the two girls in the theatre so he was in the posh bit we were in the rock and roll ball, but it, it did us proud and it was really Roy Lines, you know playing keyboards and there was um, Alan on bass me on drums Francis on, on guitar and it was just really good little thing and I think I think we played twice a day and Rick came to see us and we got chatting to Rick and that's just history, really.
1: Were you known as the Spectres then?
0: Yeah. I think status quo, the status quo, came from a guy called Pat Barlow, who was our manager at the time. The most funniest thing, when we were rehearsing as the Spectres before we became a status quo, Pat owned a, a little showroom in Le- the Lambeth Walk, and that's where his showroom was. And he, was a, he was a gas fitter, and we practiced in his basement on Monday, because I think we were a bit loud down the ba- in the basement, and we came up to, I presume, to go home, and uh, all the um, cookers and things all moved across the floor with the vibration. <laughs> so we had to move them all out of the way before we could get out of the basement. It was hilarious. But, you know, the of quo was our first proper name, I suppose. And, uh, but then we dropped the, just became status quo, and it was much easier, you know, much better to pronounce somehow, I suppose.
1: Uh- Listen to some of the uh, material when you are in, in the Spectres, including some of the BBC sessions, and you're doing some great garage covers like Gloria. Yeah. Was that representative of your material at that time? And what was it like recording some of those uh,
0: BBC radio sessions? Well, I remember I used to listen to, it was them, wasn't it? it was, yeah. It wasn't, yeah. Right. it was them, they were called them, that's right. And I used to listen to that all the time. I had the 45 single at home, and I'd play it. I used to sort of try and play it a bit like, the drummer did on the record, and the, it was great. And I think Alan Lancaster has sang that, and he did a good job of it. And I think in those days, of course, you know, everyone's copying everybody else, but uh, you know, what could you do? And we, it was just fun. It's just any musician would tell you in those days, it, it, it was just fun to play to an audience. Even that was the, that was a bonus. You know, play to an audience, come to see you, it was wonderful. So, what led you getting signed up
1: to Pi? Then was it your manager?
0: I think it must have been. Was it Pat Barlow? I'm not sure, I can't... It was John Schroeder produced it. Yeah. I remember saying to John, when we finished, um, are you thinking Picture Matchstick, man? Yeah, it was 1968, I believe. And I said, what happens now, John? He said, well, we'll promote it and see what happens. And uh, I remember it charted, and we were driven up to Manchester to do Top of the Pops. It was just the start of something new for us. You know, we didn't know how big it was going to get eventually. I think we, we released a few singles as the stage described, whatever it was. And um, yeah, weren't, weren't there a couple of singles before Matchstick Man?
1: I Who Have Nothing was your first. as And that was Under the Spectres. There was Hurdy Gurdy Man. That's right. We Ain't Got Nothing. Yeah, I quite like that one.
0: Yeah.
1: But they didn't go anywhere. And there's one as um, Traffic Jam, almost, but not quite there.
0: Yeah, Traffic Jam. And We were told, because um, we were called Traffic originally, then called Stevie Minwood. So I've got a band called Traffic. So Pat, I think it was Pat's idea, called it Traffic Jam, which I thought sucked a bit. I thought it was <laughs> very strange, you know. But then I think Status Quo was the one where we all um, decided in the end, I think, oh, yeah, OK, that'll do. We weren't really over the move. Then, of course, it stuck and it, it became world famous.
1: Matchstick Men, a huge hit in the United
0: States. Did that come a little bit later in the year? Well, I'm not too sure. I can't remember that far back. But I think what we should have done, Eventually, later on in life, maybe the 70s, has gone and spent a lot of time in America, like Fleetwood Mac did and other bands. And Because what we did, I remember we were spoiled because we were becoming extremely well-known in the UK and Europe and places like that and Scandinavia. And I think we were so far away from home that we all thought, well, we'd, we'd do this tour, get it over with and go back to UK because we knew. But in America, some places, some states, we weren't even known. No one even heard of us. Another state, oh, yeah, we found a status quo, as they called it. And uh, I think what we should have done, I think we missed out because we every British band wanted to break America. Of course, that's what we thought we'd want to do. And I think we should have moved out there, spent a year, 18 months, then come back to the UK. But looking back now, I think we were spoiled because we were spoiled in the UK and Europe.
1: Even in that earlier period, you were on some of those package tours with some great acts like Gene Pitney, for
0: example. Do you have any memories of that? Yeah, the UK tours of the Dream Pinckney. And I remember one night we all went to a club in, I don't know, some English town, and uh, allegedly we'd all made a noise and there was um, Eamon Corner, Don Partridge, Mike Cotton Sound and someone else. Anyway, we got thrown out of the club and all went back to the hotel and uh, we got on the bus. It was just a coach in the morning, you know, no no luxury. So we got on this coach and it was doom and gloom. And, um, oh, John Cobham got got all thrown out of the club last night. Or, you know, oh, that's not like John, you know, it was one of those things. And Gene Pickney got on the bus. I said, what's going on, guys? You all look so miserable. Oh, well, John got us thrown out. He said, well, what's wrong with that? That's, not, that's cool. And, oh, it's OK, because Gene said it was OK. <laughs> yeah, but they were good tours. And Don Partridge, his hit was Rosie, Eamon Corner, they were a good little band. They were good fun the Mike Cotton sound was the orchestra back in well Gene Pitney really and it was good fun and I suppose when you think about it you probably only played about four or five songs if that because you it was only a couple of hours the whole show and uh, I think there was some other acts on which I can't remember now but they were good tours and I remember like I said I was with Don Powell last night and the Crooked Billet in um, Stoke Crow near Henley and that was fab it was a Q&A, and a um, and the questionnaire was uh, Mike Reed, DJ Mike Reed. Yeah. And um, we're talking about the past. Anyway, I said to Don, do you remember that Australian tour we did? Um, How about this it was uh, a set? It was, uh, it was Slade, Status Linda Lindespan and um, Caravan. Brilliant. And on one big tour, touring Australia. And uh, we arrived in Australia. I think it possibly was Sydney. We're all completely tired because it's a long way. And wanted to go to the hotel, well, no, no, you're going straight to some big room and uh we they interviewed us for an hour so we' were just oh wanted to just go to sleep and uh, but the tour was great and answer airlines were the in- australian airline at the time and there's another one which i can't remember now but they put detectives on the plane because there was four bands english musos as they called us with all our road crews so it was a lot of people and it was really funny because we you know we'd all got probably outlandish clothes on and hair, and we stood out as, you know, musos, I suppose. But these t- four detectives were in suits and looking toast, and they- and you suss it out, and you can see, hey, they're on a the plane yesterday, and they're on it again. We start talking to them and being nice, and they were really getting annoyed, because they- all they wanted to do was us to play up and arrest us, but <laughs>
2: they
0: had no chance. When we got off the plane to fly back to UK, it nice, guys. See you, man. Bye-bye. No arresting. bye <laughs> you know, being quite sarcastic in the British way. But it was good. on come up with some memories and things. It was good fun.
1: It seemed to take a, a year or two before your sound really developed because you could say that you were stuck in more pop singles or psychedelic matchstick men, Ice in the Sun, that sort of thing. It seemed like you started to find the sound that was right
0: for you. Is Is that something that you were conscious of at the time? I think what it was, going back, Bob Young, it was our roadie at the time with the van and setting the gear up. and Because um, I, I think we were quite successful. Then there was a big gap and no hits. And Bob said, look, why don't you get rid of those um, all those stage clothes and the frilly jackets and the frilly shirts and all that rubbish and um, put jeans and T-shirts on, grow your hair, head, heads down boogie. And we redid our set. And that's when it really worked. I remember France, we was, there was some support band somewhere. Francis says to me, what's the drama." And there's a blues band. They were doing uh, they were doing this uh, double-handed shuffle with a snare drum as well. So, can you do that? I said, yeah. So I started doing that. And um, like in my chair, that was, that's another example of that shuffle. Because me being left-handed would play right-handed. It was quite simple for me to lead with the left hand. But yeah, it was down to Bob Young, really. And, um, you know, grow your hair and heads uh, down boogie and just change at the set. I, I I can't even remember if we even bothered doing pictures of Matchstick Men after that. But uh, that's right. It was Bob Young who said, oh, "I know what we should do. Why don't you play universities and um, colleges?" And so there's one we, we got booked for. and Bob said, "Oh, you know, this is the band. We did a sound check and all that." And he said, "Well, my name's whatever his name was." And he came up and he said, "You're on stage in ten minutes. Whatever it was. Yeah, okay." We said, oh, "We'll just walk on." That's what want to be. What bands are doing? Not being into just walk on, being cool. You know. And he said no he said i always introduce the bands and so we started arguing with him and bob said look let him walk on stage us. we'll walk on and play do our set anyway we're standing beside the stage and he walks on as a massive cheer from the from the uh you know the college students and university and all that and so and he goes ladies and gentlemen you've been waiting for this band for a long time and tonight we got them here and he went he stopped like that and all you could smell was Wonga Cannabis in the gig. And he went, they're here. <laughs> and fell over. <laughs> we just walked on, someone picked him up. It was hilarious. He forgot who we were. That's what I meant to say. <laughs> Instead of saying, Legend, nobody welcome status quo, you know. That's all he had to do. But he was so Wonga out of his head, he, he forgot. But uh, we did lots of university and colleges and it paid off, you know, thanks to Bob. <laughs>
1: it was Down the Dust Pipe that really accelerated things and, and you, you got in the charts with a sound that was more representative of you. I've read that that was originally a demo by the group Man. Do you remember hearing that song for the first time and putting your own spin on it?
0: I thought Down Dust Pipe was uh, written by Marty Wilde, wasn't it?
1: Cal Grossman, that one. Was it? Oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Ice in the Sun was um, Marty.
0: That's right. I'm, I'm sure it was starting something new, but it paid off just by the hard work and determination for us to prove a point. And uh, the way I look at it, it's all about the groove. You know, a drummer's job is to keep time, make the band swing, which is an old jazz saying in the early days. And uh, that's what it's about. I mean, I think when you listen to, example, like the Beatles or the Rolling Stones, they just got that wonderful groove. And Charlie, as we miss Charlie, of course, he's not with us anymore. Charlie had that lovely offbeat. And Keith Richards would always say how good Charlie was. He was always there. There's that lovely offbeat, a lovely bass drum pattern. Same with Ringo. I remember someone saying to me years ago, oh, Ringo Starr, he's not really good, is he? He's always one, you know. I said, what are you talking about? I said, Ringo kept great time and played this song. And he was obviously, as I was at times, oh, John, could you play this riff? Could you play that? Whatever. So, yeah, okay, that's fine. And uh, same with Ringo and John Bonham, I presume, and uh, other drummers like that, but... It worked. I mean, you listen to Beatles stuff today, it's fabulous. And uh, I was a huge fan of Beatles. I thought they were great. Some great songs. But um, I'm sure you feel the same. <laughs> Absolutely.
1: It seemed in those early years that you built up your following on those live shows that you mentioned. And that's one of the things that sets status quo apart from your peers in that it doesn't really matter what the critics say. It was your fans and, and they remained so loyal and
0: sustained you. Well, there's also nothing as good as a status quo audience. I mean, they've been lovely with us for many years. And, you know, I was, I was talking to Julie, my wife, and me, about this the other day. We at this gig last night. And um, there's loads of fans there coming up. And, oh, John, can, it's lovely to meet you. You can have a photo taken with you. You can just sign this picture for me on my album, whatever album we had, and all of that. And I said, it's 81 when sort of, we all fell out after about 20 years. And it's a long time ago, isn't it, to still have that fan base and appreciate it and love it, you know? Because the worst, the worst thing was for musicians and actors, and it was when the uh, dreaded COVID came. None of us could work or do anything, you know? It was awful, but yeah. thank God we were back working and the fans are coming to see us. It's, it's wonderful. We really appreciate it. In the
1: early 70s, one of the few DJs that really, really supported you, again, people may not know
0: this, was uh, John Peel. He loved your your material, didn't he? yeah he was great he played our records on his programs all the time and I remember we did some festival with him he was lovely and uh, it might have been Reading Festival or was it Lincoln Festival I can't remember years ago but also do you remember the pirate radio stations yeah one was very good for us was Caroline radio Caroline single and they played it all the time right that was a that was lovely and I I think they should have we should have been allowed to keep them I, they did no harm They just played music yeah but someone obviously didn't think it was right <laughs>
1: With Vertigo seemed to complete what people know as that classic period
0: for Quote, was that really
1: helpful moving over to
0: Vertigo? I think it was. I, I think Colin Jones was our manager at the time, I believe, and um, he said we're going to go with Vertigo, and I think they, they did us proud, I think, yeah.
1: On tracks like uh, Paper Plane and the album "Pile Driver," the drum sound on that record is possibly some of the best-sounding drums I've ever heard on on recorded material. Thank you. How was that achieved? Was it just that you set up the studio in the right way and played live?
0: I suppose, well, we always played live, thank God, We when all the stuff were recorded. But I believe it was, um, my early days was my lovely Super Classic kit, the same one that Ringo had, the same colour. Well, I bought that in Drum City in the 60s, but lovely kit. I used that on early recordings. Then um, got to deal with Premier Drums, and Premier looked after me for many years. And it just, well, it must have been just... Um, Studio engineer that miked up the drums right and got got the sound right. Because you know, I don't like me and Don were talking about this last night. And but talking about some drum kits, you see, and you walk into a studio and it's all set up. Not you not know, to say your own band, but someone else's. Say for argument's and it's got gaffer tape all over the tom toms, and they put fifteen cushions in the bass drum, and it sounds it's dead. You think what's all that about? That's no good. You want the drum is supposed to breathe, and. Uh, all my drums that I, I play and uh not that I've got lots, I've only got two kits now, but it's all open. It's all uh, the snares live, no dambling or tom toms. even the bass drums empty. And uh, it's supposed to be live, it's supposed to be big, and you know that the sound I've always loved is a uh, Brian Bennett, the show's got a lovely drum sound. Yeah. Uh, I know Brian, Brian's a lovely guy, great drummer, but he Brian writes lots of scores for TV now. Anyway, uh, then you look at you listen to someone like John Bonham, that massive drum sound. That's the way it should be, you know. But obviously, it depends what music you're playing. But uh, it must be awful to be in a studio uh, recording a drum kit with a band, and it's all dead and it's got those little blue tack things they stick on drums. No, don't like that.
1: One of the venues that Quo were, were known for for being fond of and, and playing quite a few times, even when you, you know, became very big, was the Marquee. What was special about the Marquee? I think um,
0: Marquee was the, as it was in those days, the place to play, to be seen. It's in Wardour Street in Soho. And that was like the place to be. And it had some great shops and sort of clothes shops where you could buy your, where you bought those outrageous shirts and baggy trousers and all that horrible stuff. But then there was, you know, you used to go into Wardour Street, set up in the Marquee, go to the ship pub, was it's still there. We went there a little while ago and we walked through the door and it's exactly as it was all those years ago. And I spoke to the manager and he said, we tried to keep it as it was because it's got a lot of history. And all the musicians that play the marquee, say you're on stage at nine and it's seven o'clock, we go down the pub and maybe have something to eat and have a dream. And it was really great and it's got some history there. And the sad thing is that the marquee has gone. It's a restaurant now, which is really sad because that was the place to play. And we had a guest We'd be a big girlfriend with us. something mean, smuggle them in the back doors. So There's enough to pay. <laughs> Any band with a name played there is in all, in all its history. And they moved it to um, was it Oxford Street? Yeah, up there. And I remember going there. And what they tried to keep that memory going, but I, I'm afraid it wasn't the same. No, it never is. Your management were in the same building, weren't they? No, our office was around the corner from the marquee. Right, and I think it was called Quarry Productions because. It was uh, Quarry and Rory, Rory Gallagher's management was there as well. So we shared, I think we shared the same office, but uh, good days. It was so nice to, to, like I said earlier, about going back to Waldorf Street and walking straight past that restaurant, which used to be in the market, and going in the ship and sat in there. I thought, wow, it's so lovely to be back and some fond memories in that place. But hey, you know, it's, it's as they call it, it's progress. But I'm pleased they kept the ship. That was what I'm meant to say. They—they just—it's so lovely. All, like I said, every band that's famous has been in there. It really is the place to go for a pint. <laughs>
1: involved were you on the production side in
0: that period when status quo were co-producers obviously i was interested in keeping a nice drum sound which were the engineer was good at that and said yeah no problem we keep that open and keep it nice and live it was great you know it's just part of it and uh, a lot of fans thought the band was better sound wise with uh, us producing ourselves and i think they're probably right well, you know, then we had Pitt doing it, and um, I thought Pitt was great. A lot of fans didn't, but uh, you can't keep everyone happy all the time. There's always someone going to not like something, but the majority thought it was great, so why not? You just I suppose you have to experiment and see which way it goes.
1: Pitt was involved from Rocking All Over The World for a, a few albums, and it, it seemed a bit more of a
0: produced sound. I think Rockin' All Over The World, We I can't remember if we we should, should recall that, but... um. As, it, as you know, it wasn't written by Quo, John Fogerty was. No. And um, we have lots of uh, fans liked it. And it's amazing when you start to play it. Even with the, my John Coggins Quo Reimagine, really we start, we play that and everyone's up and singing it. It's great. It, hate. it was a famous song. And uh, OK, we didn't write it, but it, it did us proud. And uh, I often wonder what John Fogerty thought of our version. We did Chop the Pops with it. That's another story. Doing those, that, that was good fun. It's a shame we were talking about that last night. It's a shame they took it off the air, because it was good. Because you weren't
1: snobbish about Top of the Pops, unlike some other bands that thought, oh, it's not cool, therefore I'm not going to do it. You embraced Top of the Pops, and you were one of the groups that were on it
0: all the time. Yeah, we loved doing it. It was good fun. Okay, so you were there all day. I remember when you finished camera rehearsal, makeup rehearsal, dress rehearsal, all these things, they had to make sure you looked okay on camera. And then we said, right, let's... What should we do now? We've got an hour to spend or an hour and a half to waste before we actually start recording live show. And uh, we go up to the bar and oh, you can't go up there. Why? Why is that? Oh, well, we have got to have a BBC personnel to take you and sign you in. So we we did that, got signed in, and it was good fun. We find other bands up there, and there was Pants people that we knew the girls well, and there was loads of other people up there. Then you just go back downstairs and get on stage and go through your three minutes of fame. And all uh, had a drink by then, and it was really, <laughs> well, just go for that right, You know, then I suppose people said, well, it's not, why don't you play live? And I said, well, I suppose we all wanted to at the end of the day. But if you got six acts on,
2: yeah.
0: if you had to do it live, it wouldn't sound as good. It wouldn't be like the record, which at the end of the day, it's what you're selling the record. That's what you're doing. Yeah. And you won't you won't get that proper exactly sound as the record in the studio, six bands. It just wouldn't work because you, you haven't got the time to spread out and all and all the mic and all the different kits up and the amplifiers. It's so much easier, just on there, go through the motions, walk off, next band, same thing, cameras done. That was it. It was great for us because I think lots of people, lots of fans saw it, bought the record, it did us proud. I, I think they should have kept top of the pops.
1: I've read that it was drugs for some of the other members and it became an environment that was frustrating and was one of the reasons why you basically had enough. Is that right?
0: Yeah, I think, um, see, I don't particularly like all that stuff. I mean, I, I did smoke and joint with the band once years ago. All it did was make you laugh and fall about. But um, I thought to myself, well, I do like a pint down the pub and uh, like most musicians really, but I wasn't happy with it. And I felt... As Bob Young used to say, you don't need it. You don't really need it, really, And um, which is quite right. Because what I was right about in anything in life, I suppose, if you take enough of what you have there, your body may, in the end, rely on it, and you become reliant. Then you know, if you're flying somewhere and you get caught with it at the airport or something like that, it causes problems for the band. It could problem for yourself. You can end up in prison, you know, whatever it is. But uh, yeah, I. Um, and I think really what we should have done is taken a few months off because we if we weren't recording, we were touring. If we weren't touring, we we're recording. You know, there's it, only so much you can take, but hey, that was rock and roll. But uh, I came home, I was living in the Isle of Man at the time, and uh, I flew back to Isle of Man. And me and Jelly just went on holidays and just relaxed and went to nice hot countries and lay on the beach. Such a shame. <laughs>
1: One of my favourite projects that deserves a, a wider airing that you were involved with is Partners in
0: Crime, and, and there's some wonderful songs like Hollywood Dreams. It was um, yeah, a guy called Pete Smith, and we, we were talking about me doing something, and he found a guy called Noel McKellar, who was a vocalist, fabulous voice, Noel McKellar, and I think he sat, spent some time with Manfred Mann for a while, and uh, the record companies, was it CBS, didn't push it. They said, we love it, John, it's great." Well, why don't you promote it and put us on tour with somebody? The Hollywood Dreams and um, Hold On, a track called Hold On, yes. fabulous, and the keyboards and guitar, yeah. And it was just lovely. And I, I, it was one thing I regret is it wasn't promoted. I loved the tour with it, and I think it could have been big. Because I remember some fans coming to see me play, and they said, "Oh, John, we love Parks and Crime." And, uh, it's a shame i must dig out those singles and um, dig out the album but if i can find it and get it played somewhere but yeah good days i'm pleased you remembered that thank you
1: The other projects that involve involved with, again, and I think there has been a, a retrospective on uh, Cherry Red in recent years, was uh, Diesel Band. And what was that led to the formation of that? Because it, you worked with Diesel Band over quite a period, didn't you?
0: Yeah, we did. There was quite a few members, Mickey Moody and Snake. There was um, also... I remember later on, I was a Pretty Things fan, so I got Phil May to come and do some vocals. Because River of Tears uh, featured uh, Phil May, didn't it? That's right. Yeah, that was a lovely song. And it's like everything else. You know, unless you got the right back in promotion, people don't hear it. And it's it's quite sad, but I, I don't know. These things happen. I spoke to lots of musicians about what they've done. They've all been through the same boat. And sometimes you just go with the flow and see what happens and hope it can improve. But the Diesel Band was a band, I remember getting together with Jackie Linton. And it was Jackie's night, uh, idea that calling it a Diesel Band because he, he knew I liked trucks and lorries and big vehicles and all that. And we called it John Kong's Diesel Band. It was, Mick, uh, it was Jackie Linton's idea. And so we did it and there was quite a few people in and out of the band all the time. It was just about playing a bit of blues and rock and roll really, having a good time.
2: Oh, no
1: Reforming the Frantic Four lineup over a decade ago, given Rick and Alan are no longer with us, it was a great way to reconnect
0: unfinished business, it seemed really. But it was also, a, I think it all started with um, Alan G. Parker getting us to reform to do film does at Shepperton. Yeah. And that all started off again, and it was great. The, thing, the only thing different for me and Alan was the invention of the in ears, you know, the uh, sound system was fabulous. And that's great. They plug me in at that when we go on stage and Lance Miles is our drum check, he just plug me in. Whereas the guys had it just fixed on their belt and a little battery on there. Anyway, it works great. And the touring on the tour bus is absolutely wonderful. I re- highly recommend it. Phoenix busing as it was then. And um, eat, sleep, and drink on and tour on it, and they're great. And go bedroom and everything else. And caterers and on tour, we had caterers with us and they travel, and so we get breakfast and lunch and dinner every gig, you know, way to go. And the only time we had stayed in hotels was on a night off, bus a park outside. Francis and Rick were still on their bus, me and Alan and Bob Young and Jilly and Dow Lancaster. We'd go and stay in the hotel for one night and uh, get back on the bus in the morning, carry on touring. It was just really good fun. I highly recommend it. And some on those tours, especially in Europe, we go over, overnight from some hall we play a gig somewhere. And we stopped with, I suppose, to get diesel and have two drivers on some of those big tours and which exchange drivers and for the we And Rick Parfitt used to come on our bus. And I said to him one night, where's Francis? Oh, he said it, Sod's gone to bed. Uh, okay. So Rick brought a ukulele on board and we sit, open some wine, and sing songs for a couple of hours. It was really good. It was a great way. And in fact, Rick Parfitt said to Francis, I love doing this what we've set we're doing now, like the old days, you know, it was really good fun. And uh, he said, it's awesome. He said, i love to. Why don't we carry on doing it with Alan and John? And Francis said, No, I don't want to. I don't want to do it. I want to carry on what, what he's doing. And this is what Rick told me. He said, um, Why don't you, John and Alan, get a replacement for me? And he said, um, Why don't you go out of status quo PLC, park it lengths from Coughlin? And it was never really discussed because we all, when the tour finished in Dublin, as you know, we all went home. And uh, carried on doing what we were doing, and uh, of course, then dear Rick died, and it was Alan. So, a lot of fans have said to me, Thank God we did a reunion tour when we did, because if we'd said, Oh, but we'll do it eventually, would have been too late. But thank God Alan G. Parker pushed forward to get it done, it was down to him, really. Thanks for that, Alan. It was good fun. Until
1: the last year or so, you, you were playing with uh, John yeah. Coughlin's Quo and and also releasing new material like Lockdown. That's a project that you were doing again over quite a period of time, wasn't it?
0: Yeah, it was. Uh, me and McHugh's been together for a long time. We got Pete Mace in and Rick Chase on bass. And, uh, it was a good, really good band. They're going out now as the Quo Connection, and uh, they're doing well. They're enjoying it. But Pete Mace wrote those two songs. I think at his home recorded those songs in his house and uh, it did well the heritage charts pushed it and thanks for that it was good you know it's just another string to the bow really and also jc quite really reimagined we're recording in september oh you know hopefully and my plan is probably get some cds pressed up and and sell them at gigs like my like musicians do and um you know obviously get it hopefully get it on the radio get it pushed and it's just another string to the bow and uh like I said earlier about JCQ Reimagined, is the fact that it's a different slant for me. I've got the player rushes then get sticks out near the end. And uh, I remember the first gig we did in Warwick Hall in Burford. I said to Paul Jeffries, a bass player, I said, I know a lot of jazz people come to this gig once a month, which I had, me and Julia, going tonight in Burford to see a band. And I wondered what the Quo fans would think us rearranging some of the Quo songs. And anyway, cut long story short, we played, we did the last number, and we finished. it. da -da la la, bam, finished. Thank you. Good night. And the whole audience stood up and clapping for more. (laughs) It was wonderful. And I said, wow, that's great. Oh, John, that was really interesting. Thank you so much. I just loved it. It's what I was afraid of in the beginning was us really changing arrangements so much you didn't recognize matchstick men, or you wouldn't recognize rock and roll, paper plane, Caroline. But I must say, Without a doubt, as soon as the song starts, you recognise what it is. And the Ben Holder who, who plays violin. Because when I thought violin, violin, and the quote song. But it's paid off, it really has words. And I think a lot of fans have come in along because they're, they're intrigued to see what this, this new venture is all about. And I said to the band, you know, when you think how many times I played Caroline Down Down, Paper Plane, uh, Whatever You Want, Rocking Over the World in its normal vein, as it was recording, as we used to do it on stage. It's given me a break, <laughs> something slightly different, you know. Just come and see it. You know, if you're out there, a Quo fan, come and see us. But I think the next gig is Royal Edmonton Spa. That's sold out. Brilliant. You know, so there'll be a few gigs around, and not as many as I did with Quo, of course, but uh, we do when we can and um, get them out there, get it out there, get it advertised and uh, do some radio promote it and see what happens
1: that's fantastic thank you so much for your time and it's pleasure. brilliant to get that coverage of, of your whole career and even better to see the projects that you're involved with not only the speaking events but uh john Cockland's quote reimagined uh thank you so much
0: it's been a pleasure thank you mate i enjoyed it anytime thank you
1: all right take care then bye
0: mate cheers man